this podcast, Dr. Jennifer Goldman Wetzler talks about the art of optimal outcomes. So stay tuned. Welcome everyone to Work 2.0 podcast. Today we have with us a fascinating guest and uh, we are all in for a treat. So we have Dr. Jennifer Goldman Wetzler. Uh, She is a founder and CEO of Alignment Strategies Group, a New York based consulting firm that counsels CEOs and leaders on how to optimize organizational health and growth. With career spanning with uh, the programs on negotiation at Harvard Law School, two decades of consulting to CEOs and senior teams, grassroots work with Middle East leaders and research on terrorism and long-term conflicts for the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Goldman Witzler is a keynote speaker who inspires audiences of all kinds, from startups to Fortune 500 companies and leading public institutions. A graduate of Tufts University, she holds a PhD in social um, organizational psychology from Columbia University. With that, welcome to the podcast, Jen. Thank you so much. It's a great to be with you. So why don't you walk us through um, your journey? Like what brought you to this point? Well, I think you summed it up quite nicely (laughs) now. (laughs) It's been 20 years of study, research, and practice in the fields of conflict and negotiation. So I started off um, my career at the program on negotiation at Harvard Law School 20 years ago. And... um, but really, even before that, you know, when people ask me, how did you get into this work? My, my answer is that it started when I was a, a child um, at home with my family, who's a, a family of uh, door slammers and screamers. Um, and I had a, a grandfather who was kind of the, um, the, the worst offender of that kind of behavior. And then um, my grandmother on the other side of my family was a, what I now call a conflict whisperer, just, just by her being, she was able to calm all of us down. And so it was the comparison and the contrast of those two figures, uh, grand, grandparent figures in my life that enabled me to both learn how to manage other people's conflict, manage my own conflict, manage anger, manage other people's anger, um, and also have this model of pure calm being the eye of the storm. So I found my way to studying in Jerusalem in college for the year. I uh, f- then found my way to the program on negotiation at Harvard Law School, where I studied and I, I uh, was a teaching assistant and a facilitator of executives and diplomats who would come from all around the world. And at some point, and, and then I continued on um, to lead negotiation training at a place called Mediation Works Incorporated and consulted at uh, Conflict Management Incorporated in Boston. And at some point over those years, that was about a five or seven year part of my, the beginning of my career, I looked around and I said, you know, for all of this principled negotiation work that we are doing, and it is helpful. I mean, I saw with my very own being the impact that we were making on people all around the world. Um, and I also saw the limitations of a principled negotiation method, a method where we explore our own interests, we explore other people's interests, we come up with options that meet as many of both sides or at all sides' interests as possible, and we come to some agreement. I saw the limitations, 
mostly in that sometimes it just didn't seem possible. So when there were explosions halfway around the world or things looked like they were going in the right direction in the Middle East peace process in the early 1990s, and then all of a sudden mm. things start to unravel. And I, I wondered why is that and what can we do about it? So I went back to uh, study and do some research. Um, my, so I did my PhD in organizational psychology at Columbia, which was all of those years, five years of research funded by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security because I was studying humiliation and the emotion mm -hmm. of humiliation and the role that it plays in exacerbating uh, international conflict. So they were interested in that. Um, in the early 2000s. And all of that research is the bedrock, the foundation of the work that I'm doing today with senior teams, with CEOs in companies all around the globe to help them optimize their organizational health, their vitality, their growth, um, and learn how to deal with conflict even when it comes up again and again and again. So my focus is really on recurring conflict, whether that's in the international realm or whether that's in, in the bedroom or the boardroom. It's, it's a focus on what do we do when conflict recurs? And the book that I've uh, published is all about dealing with rec recurring conflict. Interesting, interesting. And and how do you explain um, a, a typical day in your life? Like, how do you uh, walk us through? How do you spend your day? Well, it does not feel recently like there are that many typical days. Some days I spend <laughs> um, writing more than anything else, and other days are spent consulting more than anything else, and other days are spent having conversations just like this one with you. Uh, to kind of help people understand what is this optimal outcomes methodology to understand what it is that we're doing with clients. Um, so I think you know, that is one of the joys of this work is that it's, it's completely entrepreneurial and um, flexible. <laughs> Interesting. And, and, and um, talk to us about what is Alignment Strategies Group? Like what, um, what do you do there? What we do at Alignment Strategies Group is we roll up our sleeves and work alongside our clients, CEOs and their senior teams, to help them talk across lines of differences, opinion, differences in worldview, to help them, as I said, optimize organizational health and growth. So sometimes um, clients come to us because they know that they are on the brink of major, major growth either be driven by innovation or driven by com competition coming in that they did not expect, but here it is. Um, so they, they often call us because there's something happening in their, in the external environment or inside of the organization that is prompting them to think we've got to grow. We've got to learn how to innovate. We've got to learn how to talk across the organization, across even just a senior team where people may not be seeing completely eye to eye, may not be understanding each other. So we come in, typically we start with the senior team at the top of the organization to help people learn how to have conversations that are going to move the team and move the entire organization forward. Interesting. And um, 
over your um, sort of span in career, how has um, our ability to handle um, uh, or negotiate changed? So, like, how have we? How has that market evolved? Uh, if if you can walk us through that. Yeah. Well, I think twenty years ago, when I first started teaching principled negotiation, it still seemed like a new concept to many people. This idea that we should collaborate, that we should ask other people what their interests were, why they wanted what they wanted, that still seemed somewhat revelatory. People hadn't thought about things that way. We were much more in a, the pie must be fixed, and if I'm going to win, you're going to lose. And I think now, 20 years later, particularly in work 2.0, right, in in you know, the most innovative, the most um, successful companies around the world and uh, today, it's a generally, seems to be a generally accepted principle that collaboration is a mm. useful tool. Um, matrix organizations can be useful. I was just listening to uh, another one of your guests who was talking about holacracy and mm. lack of hierarchy in organizations, um, which is wonderful and fascinating work. So, um, I think the way things have shifted is that when the idea that we should collaborate with other people is no longer revelatory, the next question is what happens when it fails? Mm. Great when it works, but I'd be shocked if there were anyone listening to this conversation who could say, I've never had the experience of trying to collaborate with someone else and it and it didn't work, right? Everyone mm. probably has some kind of experience or some kind of story where we're trying, we're kind of banging our heads up against the wall, trying and trying to collaborate with someone else, and they just will have nothing to do with it. They don't want to collaborate. Or maybe they're trying to, and it's just not working, and we can't figure out why. It's very hard to, to figure out why sometimes. So my work today, the Optimal Outcomes Method, is designed to address that conundrum of what do we do when our best well most well-intentioned efforts fail we'll resume after a short break this part of the podcast is brought to you by first friday fair fastest ai powered way to find your next opportunity check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job let's get back to the podcast interesting and i think um when i was uh, reading this book, I think um, so. Let me plug this guy. So, by the way, fascinating book. So, um, as as we were talking before the session, um, it was it was funny. So, I recently read uh, Chris Voss's uh, Never Split the Difference, and when I was reading this, it was like um, it, it's a very nice segue into some some of his work. So, it it was it was pretty pretty sort of. Um, very, I think it's it's it always um, fill us with fill me with joy when folks like you print stuff for us to chew, right? Because there are a lot of stuff that that is out there around negotiation and understanding that we never got to sort of understand that the science behind um, negotiations and science behind understanding um, the other party. So this is this is really refreshing um, to to hear about that. So I thank you so much for 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 for, for this good work there. Absolutely, my pleasure. 
So, um, so now let's talk about the book. So, uh, what's the what's the premise behind this? So, like, what why write this book? Well, really, the main reason is because of what I was saying before that I I looked around at the world and at my own life, and I saw that regardless of the fact that we had people all over the globe coming out of program negotiation and many other mm-hmm. places teaching this principled negotiation methodology, I saw that it often fail, despite our most well, you know, our best intentions. And so the book is designed to help people of who, who feel stuck, who feel stuck. Mm. And, you know, I, when I was doing my PhD, I spent five years, five entire years looking just at the problem, looking only at what are the complex factors that cause us to get stuck in intractable long-term conflicts. And at some point toward the end of that five years, I realized I could spend the rest of my life, and many people do, Mm. just looking at the reasons why we get stuck. And I promised myself in that moment when I had that realization that I wasn't going to do that. That at some point, I had to look up and ask myself the question, what can we do about it? So Mm. given that conflict is complex, that it's multiply determined, there are many, many, many factors for why we get stuck in conflict. Um, The question really becomes, well, what can we do about it? How can we get ourselves out of these self-perpetuating, self-reinforcing conflict loops? And that is the work of the book. So the reason why I wrote the book is to help people understand how to get ourselves out, how to get out of the, how to free yourself. Interesting. I think so. One thing that I was um, uh, when I was reading this book, I realized that um, so say back in India, a couple of years back, I'm from India. So um, we we used to have this system uh, in which elders and I think you you briefly touched upon that sort of your 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 grandma. She is sort of that that whisperer. Yeah. If something happens, she she has this tendency to de-escalate the situation and at some capacity. Now, if if I if I look sort of how um, the world around me, there is we are. I think earlier we used to have that very high integrated families in which there are elders, they are more experienced, they understand, they have seen the world a bit, a bit more, and they have they fit, fit this template of that that whisperer who actually can can jump in quickly and say, hey, don't worry, you're just boiling out of nothing. It just it just settle. Um, I, I think. Um, I remember this quote from uh, I think uh, Queen Elizabeth for the first that uh, time uh, solves a lot more problem that than human can fix, hmm. right? So it's so so basically now with that template, if if we look today, there we are more nuclear families out there today. We are sort of more uh, there is not that experience expertise layer that that used to be there for all of us. Yeah. So how has that um, change the dynamic of of our understanding of an optimal outcome? Yeah. Well, I think the best way I can answer that question is to say that's another reason why I wrote this book the way that I wrote it. So the research that I did uh, was actually, a, we got an award from the Defining Wisdom Project at the University of Chicago early on in the research. And the reason why is because we were looking at what 
are the defining characteristics of wisdom and how can we apply them to difficult conflict, to recurring conflict? Even, you know, yeah, it doesn't have to be international conflict that we're talking about. It could be conflict in a marriage, conflict at a, in a boardroom between a CEO and a sales head of sales or CEO and COO. Um, it could be between parents and children uh, in communities. But the idea of the whole, the whole idea of the book is to bring the best practices that we have from thousands of years of wisdom traditions and infuse our practice today with those things that have worked well, that we know people have done, have used over time. So we can talk more about what some of those practices are. Yeah. So, so um, now let's talk about conflict. Like, so from, from your vantage point, how do we define a conflict? A great question. Uh, the kind of standard, typical uh, definition of conflict is any time that uh, two or more people are in a situation where either values or interests are misaligned. But of course, now uh, I would define it even more broadly to say conflict does not have to happen between people. There, we can have conflict inside of ourselves. And in the book, I talk a lot about that as well, about how our own values inside of ourselves <clears throat> can sometimes seem to clash or conflict, making it difficult for us to act or behave in ways that we're proud of. Interesting. And I think one thing that um, I particularly seen um, with sort of with, with, when I'm dealing with some of my workers many times, when you are in a conflict, right, many times the emotions trickle in and they sort of tend to take over and messing it up for for everyone. Like how, so at what point um, you realize that you possibly, like, uh, you need help or, or, or you sort of need to de-escalate or you need to do something um, uh, to, uh, to sort of pull yourself out of this, this emotional um, roller coaster while you're going through this any conflict that, that you're dealing with. Right. Well, hopefully uh, you're aware of your emotions 24-7. For some of us, that's a lot easier than others. For some of us, we're so in touch with our emotions that we wear them on our sleeves. And for others, those emotions are kind of hidden deep down. Um, there's actually an assessment that you can take on the book website. So if you go to optimaloutcomesbook.com slash assessments, you'll find an assessment to see how do I deal with my own emotions. Um, and that can be very enlightening for people. Are you someone who tends to push them down so you're barely even aware of them? Are you someone who experiences them deeply inside but has trouble expressing them? Or are you someone who, um, more like maybe what you were describing, those emotions are kind of coming up all the time and we explode when we express them. So depending on how you typically tend to both experience your emotions inside of yourself and then also mm -hmm. express them, different ways of handling them are going to be more or less useful. The something that one thing that I think can be helpful for people, regardless of which of your tendencies, which one of these ways of both experiencing and expressing your emotions is your own tendency, is to simply notice them. 
Mm. This is, of course, a lot can be easier said than done. It takes practice. So in the book, the book is filled with uh, eight chapters, and each chapter has its own practice. And the reason why we call them practices is because they're things you need to practice in order to get better at them over time. Just like going to the gym, you know, you lift weights in order to build your muscles. You do these practices in order to build your your practice mm-hmm. muscles. So one thing everyone can do is at various points during the course of a day, could be just one time a day, could be for 30 seconds or two seconds even, to just be quiet and notice and ask yourself, what am I feeling right now? Mm-hmm. To it. So um, in the book, I tell a story about a time that I went hiking or backpacking in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. And my only purpose really for the entire trip was to simply notice my emotions and how they would come and go. And mm. I was there for four days backpacking. It rained. It was like raining cats and dogs basically the entire time. So I was drenched. Uh, and there was a lot of mud, which I noticed a lot of my feelings of disgust coming up as my boots would kind of go into the mud and come out and, you know, losing mud. Um, but there were also a lot of feelings of calm and feelings mm. of joy of being outside in the wilderness. This is something I had been longing to do for a very long time and finally done it. And then feelings of sadness came up as I thought about family members who had recently passed away who I missed. And it was at some point that I noticed, you know, my emotions were kind of coming and going. One was kind of lead into the next. And before I knew it, I was having a whole other experience. It was a lot easier for me to notice how these emotions were coming and going when I was by myself on a hiking trail. And I still, I do believe it's possible to notice our emotions even when we're not on a hiking trail for mm. four days in a row. Right. So you know, I have a screensaver of the a statue of the Buddha that I took 15 years ago on a trip to Cambodia. And it's been my screensaver ever since. <laughs> <laughs> that Buddha helps calm me down. And I look at it, you know, when I'm switching from one application to the next, and I just take a breath. So my experience is that doing this in a proactive way is very helpful in order to then do it when we're in the heat of conflict with someone else. We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. Interesting. And um, you, you, you talk about uh, conflict patterns. Like, uh, can you walk us through what are what are the conflict patterns that, uh, that we should be eyeing for? Yes, absolutely. So out of my research and my practice with clients and students over 20 years, I've identified four habits for conflict habits that we tend to get ourselves stuck in. We do them over and over and over again, and we do them with the best of intentions. So one of them, the first one is that we, uh, we blame other people. Yeah. A very familiar for many people habit, um, particularly in the West, maybe, maybe even, uh, I haven't done the research internationally, but, uh, mm. In America, you know, this idea that we should compete at all costs and our job is to win 
and it's the other person's fault. And so we can get into this blame and attack other people. Um, and again, you know, good, good intentions are we want to win a fight or we want to win an argument. Mm. The problem is when we do this habitually over and over and over again, our strength turns into our limitation and, uh, we end up getting stuck in conflict instead of winning like we meant to. So that's blame and attack other people. In contrast, we may blame and attack our own selves. So we blame and shame ourselves. And I think until Brene Brown came onto the scene talking about shame, this was something that was very hard for people to even acknowledge at all. I think it's still difficult. I mean, she, she does such a good job of explaining it and joking about it, how you know, no one wants to talk to her if she tells them that she's a shame researcher. Um, but we know it when we experience it. And so mm-hmm. your habit may be, you're not necessarily blaming other people as much as you're blaming yourself when you're in recurring conflict. So you're in conflict and, oh my gosh, it must be my fault. I must have done something wrong. How could I have been so stupid? And we'll stew in our own negative self-talk when maybe our best intentions are to learn better, learn to do things better for next time. Oh, I could have done it differently. Here's how. But when we're stuck in that negative self-talk, the learning Mm. goes out the window and the negative consequences are we're stuck deeper and deeper in that recurring conflict. We're not getting anywhere by, by blaming and shaming ourselves. The third habit is shutdown. So mm. kind of an extreme version of avoiding conflict. So the best intentions, if a conflict situation is not about something that we particularly care about or that's important to us, sometimes absolutely it can be the best thing to avoid that situation or avoid having a conversation with someone in the heat of the moment. The problem only arises when our Every time or, you know, our habitual reaction to conflict is to shut down or walk away or hide or go away. That is only cause for bubbling up over time and um, Mm. conflict recurring without our wanting it to. And then finally, and maybe most counterintuitively, getting back to what we were talking about before, this conflict habit of relentlessly collaborating. So particularly Mm. for people who've grown up in the world of collaboration. In organizations that tout collaboration as you know the highest and best use of all <laughs> of all people all the time, it can come as a surprise to notice that uh, even collaboration can be a habit that keeps us stuck in conflict. If you are relentlessly trying to collaborate with someone else who has no interest in collaborating with you, you're staying stuck in conflict. You're wasting time, mm. energy. You may be wasting resources. Um, you may be doing damage to a relationship with other person or people. So uh, these are these these are these four habits that can get us into trouble. Interesting. And um, I remember you were talking about um, pattern breaking paths. So like there was you were talking about the conflict pattern breaking paths. Like what are those? Yeah. So a pattern breaking path is very simply any action that's constructive, any constructive action that you can take. That, that will be different from what you've been doing before. So if you've been relentlessly collaborating and it's not working because the other person or people are not agreeing with you or they're not helping you or they're not doing what it is that you're asking them or wanting them to do, 
the key to creating a pattern breaking path is first of all, take a breath, <laughs> breathe, mm. take a pause, notice, am I doing my habit, right? Am I someone who relentlessly collaborates? Okay, if I am, what else could I do? What else could I do that would be constructive, that might help move things forward? And it almost doesn't matter what else you do as long as what you're doing is constructive, intended to move things in the right direction, and different from what you've done in the past. And the reason why it's called a pattern-breaking path and not only just pattern-breaking action is because what we know from the research is that uh, when you're stuck in recurring conflict, it's usually because it's a complex, multiply determined situation. It's it, mm. not only one reason that you got stuck in conflict. And so it's probably not only one action that's going to get you out of that conflict situation. It's going to be a path. It's going to be multiple steps that are going to move you in the direction that you desire. So there's a lot of practices in the book that help you create the path or the guardrails even the path to um to break the pattern that you've been in with someone else and um and start moving in a new and, and more optimal direction interesting and if suppose um someone is stuck in a say, say a deadlock situation in which sort of no one is letting their their guards down no one is sort of letting it it loosen or uh, in some aspect that uh, i think many ways you think that the other side is not letting go. I think that's where sort of it just gets in a, in a very interesting situation. Like, how do you deal with um, an active sort of an active scene where sort of there is um, a conflict going on? How do you, um, as someone who's stuck in it, um, evaluate the situation? Mm -hmm. I'm happy to answer that, but first, I want to ask you to clarify: What do you mean by when the other person is not letting go? Tell me a little bit more about. So, so, so basically, uh, I think, um, say for an example, um, you want to collaborate on something, right? But the, as you were, I think you were saying uh, before that, say other, uh, other, other sort of the other party is not willing to collaborate. They say, okay, this is my terms, and I'm very strict with this, this term. I cannot move, and and then you want it to happen, you want to collaborate, but you know that it just it just gets to a point where either I have to leave it. Um, or I have to give up uh, sort of some of the fundamental sort of uh, negotiation points. How do you sort of then de-escalate this? Like, how do you uh, come out of the situation? Yeah. We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. So at a minimum, when you find yourself in a situation like that, what you want to ideally be able to do is take a moment's pause. Now, this can be very chicken or an egg kind of situation mm. because the more we need a pause, the less likely we tend to be to be able to take that pause or be in a position to take that pause because we're so triggered, we're so riled up. And that's where taking these proactive pauses where we're, you know, 30 seconds out of the course of a day, just stopping and asking ourselves, what's going on? How am I feeling? What's happening in my body? What's going on around me? Let me look around Let me just breathe. The more we can do that on a regular basis, I you know, the research shows and my own experience with myself and thousands of students and clients 
suggests that it's much easier to do it when you're in the moment. So in the moment or afterwards, right? If you're in the moment and you forgot to pause because you were so riled up and you couldn't take your pause, the best thing you can do is review what happened after it's done to at least be able to extract learnings. Not again, not for the sake of blaming yourself for what went wrong or blaming others for what went wrong, but just for the sake of learning. So you can kind of split a page down in two and on one hand side of the page, right, put a plus at the top and the other side of the page, put a triangle at the top and write, you know, my rule of thumb is let's get three bullets down on each side of the page. What worked well about that situation? What Mm. I'm proud of? What did I do well? What happened that went well? And on the other side of the page, what do I want to change for next time? What could I do differently to help this go better next time? And you can ask yourself, what would a pattern breaking action be? So if you have the presence of mind to take a break in the midst of the situation, there are lots of things you can say, depending on the situation, you know, to take a pause, take a break. Let's take a break. I got to go and have a little bit of quiet time. So sometimes that's not possible. And sometimes the best thing we can do for ourselves is just breathe internally. Mm. Um, and sometimes, as I said, you have to do it afterwards. But to ask yourself, what would I do differently? What would pattern breaking action have been? If I'm relentlessly trying to collaborate, maybe my suggesting five more options to this person isn't going to be the thing that's going to mm. be the trick here. Maybe I've got to lay off. Maybe I've got to be quiet. I don't want to go in the opposite, com- complete opposite direction and completely shut down and hide from them. But maybe mm. it would help if I didn't, you know, if I, if I just laid low for a few days, maybe that would help. Or God knows, right? But often there's, there are areas of gray that we just don't consider. And I heard you before in your questions say, you know, either they're going to work it out with me or it's just forget it. (laughs) It's not going to work. So what I really want to suggest is the whole purpose of all this work is to say there may be something different that we haven't haven't considered yet. And taking a pause and break is a chance to figure out what's happening. Interesting. And um, um, you were also talking about... um, Conflict whisperer, like what are what are those and how you could, is this something that you could be or you need someone to be uh, yes. to help you out of this? So the whole purpose of all this work is to help people be their own conflict whisperer. So it's great if you have access to a coach or mm. to an HR professional or uh, someone who could help you or a mediator it helps something. It's wonderful if you have access to someone else who can be a conflict whisperer for you. But even better than that is knowing that you already have within everything mm. that you need to free yourself from conflict. So coming, actually, I want to come back just to the thing we were just talking about because I realized that another one of the practices that's very helpful when we find ourselves mm. kind of triggered emotionally or in a tough situation, we can't figure out how to get out of it is to do this thing, to to imagine, use our imagination to ask ourselves, what would it look like in the future if what I would like to have happen, happened? Mm -hmm. And 
we don't want to stop there because just dreaming, it could be that one of the reasons we're stuck is that we've been off dreaming in la la land and the, the thing that we want to have happen is something that's simply not feasible for other people. So that actually is mm. the question of what is an optimal outcome. The way I define an optimal outcome is it's something that both maximizes the uh, imagined future that we have for ourselves and for others in this situation, but also takes into account the reality going like this but also on this other axis um, maximizes the reality that we're facing maximizes who the other people are what they care about what they're up against maximizes what the parameters of the situation are so we're always taking into account the reality of the situation and also what our dreams and our imagination are um so come oh gosh now i lost track of your question <laughs> so um, no, so I was asking that um, conflict whisperer. So how, like, how, who, who would be a, like, uh, who could be a good conflict whisperer? Yeah, so I think we all have conflict whisperers inside of us already, and the key task is to enable that inner conflict whisperer to come out. Right? We all have. We were talking about wisdom before, and um, the wisdom of the ages. We all have. Uh, inner wisdom that when we're quiet we have a much higher chance of hearing that wisdom than if we're constantly kind of chattering so one way to enable your inner uh, wisdom to emerge is to get quiet and that can be scary for many people mm -hmm. and that's why I say it doesn't you don't have to be quiet for four days or 24 hours you can be quiet for 30 seconds a day Sometimes the um, frequency of practice is more important than the duration. <laughs> so, um, and really practicing imagining what do I want for myself, practicing looking at what is the reality that I'm facing here. That can be a very nuanced, difficult thing to acknowledge. What is reality? Who is this other person? They've been acting in a way that I don't like. They're greedy, they're selfish, they're whatever. And that's what I've been calling them. Mm. What would it look like to simply acknowledge, hmm, wow, they've been behaving this certain way that I don't like? What would I even, without pointing fingers at them, without calling them something negative, what is that? What does it say about them? Mm. How can I acknowledge that that may be something I don't like, but that is true? That's how they've been behaving. And how have I been behaving? Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. Own selves and come face to face with the reality of how we've been behaving. We do not want to do that. And <laughs> when we do, all kinds of shifts can happen, all kinds of light bulbs. That's how you start to become your own. Interesting. And and what is the role of being mindful into this? Like how what how important um, is being mindful when when it when it, it when it comes to your ability to or you becoming a conflict whisperer or your ability to de-escalate a situation? Yeah, it, it's absolutely central. Like there's not there are very few wisdom 
traditions on the planet that don't involve some kind of mindfulness or meditative practice. And I, for me, in the book, I call it pausing because it doesn't matter to me what we call it and it doesn't need to be scientifically proven way of doing it. It doesn't need to be scary. It just needs to be taking a pause. It just needs to be being quiet for a moment. So absolutely, being mindful helps us observe things that are going on in a situation that we couldn't see if we weren't pausing and taking a look around and observing the situation for what it was, for what it is. And, you know, the first, the, the, actually the second practice in the book, after looking at what are our habits and what patterns do we get stuck in with other people as a result of our habits, um, the next practice is mapping out the conflict. Mm. Because mapping out the conflict on a piece of paper um, helps us see things about a situation that we couldn't see when we were just talking about it as if it's you and me in a conflict, right? Or mm. Sally and Bob in a conflict. Um, or Emmanuel and his father in a conflict. Um, it's, it's typically when we're stuck in recurring conflict, it's usually not as simple as one, two people stuck. It's usually involves more people. There's more backgrounds at play. So the mapping exercise is all about asking people to put at least one person or event or set of background, uh, influences, something on that map that you didn't before consider relevant. And then you start to get on a roll. So if I say put, put at least one more on, I, you know, you could, you could put 50 more things on there. And then you start to get a much more nuanced, complete picture of what's really going on. And even just doing that exercise, you know, light bulbs start going off for people and they start seeing things that are potential levers for change. Interesting. So if if we um, take this situation to say, um, so today, in today's times, we are living in a very um, interesting polarized um, environment, right? So there are sort of political um, aspect that's, at least in the United States, that's, this is the year of election. So hopefully this is only going to go up and the partisanship is only going to go up when you are living uh, in sort of in this 24 by 7 uh, echo chambers around you right so it tend to sort of train you into a bias into sort of some perspective that that you you hear more and more and more often how do you um like how do you then resort to something like this um staying sort it's like staying uh, willing to work um, collaboratively with the other side, and like, how? What are some of the things that you could suggest yeah. that that listeners and viewers could sort of take um, that they should do to sort of at least they are open to both the sides, and they are actually instead of just being polar and just saying um, playing that yelling game, and and pretty much, uh, what would you suggest? What you're really talking about in my language is values. So when we're living in a polarized society, it often can at least seem like the reason why is that our values are clashing with one another. Mm -hmm. Different ways or different worldviews, different ways of seeing the same situation. So one of the core practices of the Optimal Outcomes Method is about using our values in our favor rather than letting us letting those values get and keep us stuck and, and locked in conflict with other people. 
given the situation that you just described, one, there's so many different things we could talk about about values, but one mm. exercise that might be helpful to, to talk about is something I do with my students at Columbia in the course that I teach on optimal outcomes. And what I do is that I pair people up. So we've got a room mm. full of people who are standing in pairs and we unveil a list of polarizing issues. Now, of course, like you mentioned today, almost <laughs> almost any public issue yes. feels like it's polarizing. Um, right. So it wouldn't be hard to choose an issue, but you know, some classic ones like abortion, the death penalty, um, gun control, uh, like that. So we, we give people a set of issues that they can choose what they want to talk about. And as a pair, they choose what, what their issue is. And then their job is to each take both sides of that issue and argue them. Mm. And when the other person is arguing, whichever side of the issue that person is arguing, your job is just to listen. So basically, both people have the opportunity to listen to someone else arguing the side that they may personally agree with or care about, and mm. also the side they don't agree with and don't like. And they also, each person has the opportunity to speak the side they care about and agree with, and also speak the side that they don't care about and don't agree with. And as you can imagine, this is an incredibly powerful exercise. Mm. The biggest takeaways that people have when they do this exercise is that they start to notice that the underlying values under each of the positions that they personally have just argued can be more similar than they thought. Now, this is not always true, but often it, it's true more often than we like to realize. Mm. Next time you are stuck in a what seems to be a very polarizing debate with someone else, if you feel comfortable with that person, or even if you don't feel comfortable, but you think it's possible to have a conversation with that person and say, what would it be like if we switched sides for a minute? Right? Mm. Try doing this exercise with someone else and see how that goes. Or you could try it just on your own and see what it would be like to out loud and speak the other side and see where might this person be coming from. So very often in the kinds of situation, in the issues that I talked about before, we see Values like love, mm. freedom, those are shared by both sides. Mm. They're expressing those values differently. Mm. They're actually shared values at the end of the day. And then the question, of course, could become when you have a longer conversation, why are we expressing those differently? Why do you care about it, um, freedom for certain people and I care about freedom for other people? And that could be an interesting dialogue, but it can often really take the emotion and the pressure out of these polarizing debates. So that's just one example of a way that uh, we can kind of cool the flames of these very difficult values-driven polarizing debates. Interesting, interesting. And and um, what are some of some of the things that people get it wrong about uh, resolving a conflict? Yeah. Well, I think we're often thinking that our habits are going to solves the problem and we just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again and not getting the result that we're looking for so i think someone at some point said that was the definition of insanity <laughs> and i think that's true right when, when we just do the same thing over and over 
aspect. Interesting. And and how, what are your thoughts on say um, engaging in someone else's conflict? Like is that a, so or, or 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 engaging someone else's in your conflict? So to, to basically give you um, or at least give you some flex room sort of or at least an outside perspective. Mm-hmm. So you mean what are my thoughts about being a mediator or a third party or a neutral party? Right, right, right. Well, yeah, yeah I, I think that can sometimes be helpful. The main the key is being aware that you're doing that. And I would, I would argue probably being explicit about it in most cases can be helpful. So if you're trying to be a neutral third party in someone else's conflict or kind of mediate in someone else's conflict, Doing it without asking them permission or doing it without talking about it first, probably not going to work so well. Right? <laughs> People are going to wonder, why is this person doing this? What are they trying to achieve? They're pissing me off. Can you please stop doing that? You know, but People often don't say that. And so it can often cause more harm than good. So I think mm. probably you know, it depends on the situation. That's why I'm qualifying it. But, um, but more than likely being explicit about what you're trying to do. Interesting. And, and what are some of the no-nos um, when it comes to um, someone dealing with a conflict? Like some of the things that you should check out of the door or something before you engage. Yeah. That's, a, that's a hard one. For me, there may be other people in the negotiation world who could rattle off, you know, here's the five things you should never do. That's not my style. That's not the way that I work. I would not typically say you should never do X, Y, Z. It depends on how you've been doing things. So, you know, and I would just come back to what's your habit? And the no-no would be stop doing that thing if it's not working for you. If it's working for you, great. All the power to you. Continue forward. Bless your heart. <laughs> but if you've been relentlessly collaborating and it's not working or you've been hiding from someone else and they are coming after you, <laughs> stop, you know, do not, do not keep doing that. That's a no-no. Ask yourself, Interesting. pattern breaking action here be? How could I change my behavior? And again, you know, the focus is on how can I change my behavior? They are who they are. I have a lot more influence and control over how I respond than over how other people respond. So I'm going to put the focus of control on myself. And my Interesting. So now, a um, few questions on the book. Um, so, or at least your journey of writing the book. So when you were writing the book, um, uh, like what are some of the aha moments that you observed that uh, when you started writing the book and uh, and sort of uh, the assumption or the initial hypothesis that this will end up is actually so some what are some of the aha moments you can talk about well you mean about the methodology in the book in particular yeah yeah well the way that i developed the book so the book i wrote the book over a span of about 13 years so the way that I wrote the book was actually by teaching the course at Columbia over and over and over again. And I taught it with clients as well. But really, each time I taught that, that workshop at the university, I refined it and refined it and refined it until it became something that students said, yes, <laughs> this really <laughs> right? So really, I mean, the truth is from the get-go, the feedback was kind of amazing and people just were having these epiphanies right and left and finding it really useful. And that was what spurred me on to keep going. 
And it was in the refining that the book came to be what it is today. Um, so I'm trying to think about, I mean, I remember in the early days I was calling, I was talking about values as taboo values and ideal values. And then I realized that shadow values was a better way to describe mm -hmm. it. wasn't exactly taboo wasn't the right word, but that these were shadow values kind of with a nod to Jung and psychology, all about the shadow versus the ego. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I don't know if this is what you meant, but I will say the process of sitting down and writing the book itself, you know, that, that happened over the span of about a year. And mm. that process was a very personal journey for me because I, I wrote a little bit. And in the introduction of the book, I write about my grandmother and my grandfather. And I write about my clients throughout the book. So mm. Bob, the CEO of... Mm. The company and Sally, his top salesperson, they run throughout the book their story, and there are many, you know, many, many, many stories about clients throughout the book. And just the connections that I started to make between how I grew up and the kinds of clients that I tend to serve and do well by, for me, was really earth shattering. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think, you know, for me, it's been a real, it was clear to me that there's been a lot of healing that I've personally been able to do through my work, through my service to the world, coming from kind of this, you know, childhood where I was cowering in a corner sometimes from my grandfather's anger and the anger that showed up in other parts of my family as well, to then see how I help other people deal with their anger and how I help the mm. people surrounding those leaders deal with that person's anger. Whoa. I mean, that was pretty pretty cool and 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 what's the uh who is the ideal author like a uh, reader you you wrote it like when you were writing this book who do you envision as or at least in who is the ideal reader of this book as per you yeah. it's ceos and their senior teams so anyone who's on a team in an organization that is pushing ahead really cool innovative projects trying to do things different exciting work in the world trying to make a difference, um, needing to work together. It's for senior leaders of all kinds of people. Beautiful. So um, that brings us to the end of the conversation. So um, I have, I want to spend a few minutes on your journey. Okay, so um, we ask all of our guests to um, share some of the qualities, some of the, some of their, the qualities that has helped them be what they are today. Like what? What are those qualities you attribute your your success and your journey so far to? Yeah. So, well, first of all, it goes without saying that I am standing on the shoulders of giants, and there are many, many mentors, and I name many of them in the book, who whose work has come before me. So, being in relationship with them, being mentored by them, uh, Martin Deutsch, Peter Coleman, Roger Fisher, all my colleagues mm. at the Harvard Negotiation Project. Um, all my colleagues at Teachers College at Columbia University. I mean, I feel very lucky and fortunate to have been in dialogue and in relationship with some really, truly astounding people. Um, and I think looking inward, when you ask about qualities, what's a quality that has helped me do what I do today? It is what we've been talking about throughout this conversation. It's the ability to stop what I'm doing, take a pause, 
listen to the voice inside and then not only listen, but actually take action based on what I hear. So I think this is really has two parts to it. And if we only listen to ourselves, but we don't then take action based on it, we've got half. Mm. It takes to do great work in the world, but the other half is actually taking action. And again, I mean, that's what all of the work that we're talking about is all about. It's about having the courage to take the hard action, to do something different. Doing something different typically is not, not easy. Um, it takes courage. It takes perseverance. It takes knowing that it, you might fail, dusting yourself off and getting right back up again. I think it's those two things, the ability to listen and look inside and then take action on that that I've learned from my mentors and you know, from my conflict whisperer grandmother. <laughs> Fascinating. And thank you for sharing that uh, with our listeners and viewers. So um, one more question we ask all, all of our guests to share are some of their favorite reads, some of the books that, that really has inspired them or, or some of their favorite reads that this, they just like to share with us. So do you have books in, uh, to share with our community? Yes, I have many. And I would like to highlight one that came out um, just a couple of years ago now called The Art of Gathering by Priya Parker. It's a wonderful book. Priya wrote it based on her life's journey about how to get people together in a way that people feel seen and heard, truly seen and heard. And it's full of inspiring stories of people who have done this, both in their private personal lives and also professionally. And it's just written, it's, it's a beautifully written book and it's just chock full of great, great ideas about how to gather people from meetings in organizations to all kinds of wedding and all other kinds of guests. Awesome, awesome. So that brings us to the to the last question uh, for the for the session. So, if you want the listeners and viewers to take away something from this conversation, like what would that be? What would be your closing remark for our listeners and viewers? When you find yourself stuck in recurring conflict, do something different. Do something pattern breaking. That may not be a shocker given our conversation, but that's what I would say. That's I think that's brief and 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 simple and very powerful. Uh, with that, um, thank you so much, Jen, for uh, spending time with us, helping us understand uh, one of the major critical part of our day-to-day -day lives: uh, our conflicts. Some of us like it, like it, and some of us are really want to solve it. So um, thank you. And for our listeners and viewers, uh, do check out the book. Um, I will put the link on the uh, description of, of the podcast and, uh, and the YouTubes. So I hope uh, you like it. Do let, let me know. Do let, like, uh, let Jen know uh, through her Amazon page or which, wherever you are taking it from. Uh, your, what are your thoughts on the book? With that, thank you so much, Jen, for spending time with our community and, and sharing your, your perspective with us. Thank you so much, Michelle. Great Thanks. conversation. I was sick of home, but actually I was homesick Never really knew that I would have to grow up so quick I'm so uncomfortable, don't know anybody here Just 
a couple dudes that I met once. That's it. Then I go into the booth feeling nervous. Got butterflies in my stomach like I'm so worthless. Is the mic on? I don't know how to work this. Inside I'm breaking down. I hope I'm not up on this.